Something I said at the beginning of this story bears repeating. You can draw a straight line from Donald Trump's speech on election night to the events of January 6th. And now we're at the end of that line. We will not let them silence your voices. We're not going to let it happen. Not going to let it happen. It's just after noon and President Trump is riling up his supporters. The Vice President, Mike Pence, is in a car on the way to the Capitol. Trump finishes his speech. It's just after 1 p.m. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. He doesn't. Trump heads back to the White House instead. But his supporters follow his direction. They march to the Capitol. Inside the Capitol. Madam Speaker, the Vice President, and the United States Senate. Pence is already presiding. Pursuant to the Constitution and the laws of the United States, the Senate and House of Representatives are meeting in joint session. Trump is sequestered in his private dining room, looking across to the giant flat-screen TV he's installed on the other side of the room. He's watching his supporters get closer to the doors of the Capitol building. And at first, at least, he likes what he sees. Then, shortly after 2pm, the rioters break into the Capitol. They smash the windows. January 6th is the day where all of these insidious trends that we've been watching and covering for the past four years coalesced and became flesh and blood. Conspiracy theorizing, online disinformation, a president using irresponsible inflammatory rhetoric, and his supporters taking that rhetoric seriously. January 6th forced Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill to reckon with Donald Trump and what they'd been a part of in a way that they'd never been forced to do over the past four years. I'm going to tell you that story, how the riots unfolded from inside the White House and on the Senate floor, and what it means. I'm Jonathan Swan. For this episode, like every episode in this series, I spoke to a range of sources in Trump's inner circle, including senior White House officials, senior administration officials, senior campaign officials, and other advisors to the president. I spoke to many of them on the basis of deep background. I can use the information they give me, but not say from where it came. From Axios, this is how it happened. Trump's last stand. Part five, where it ends. Certificate of the electoral this is what it felt like the inside the Capitol. Seems to be regular in form and authentic. And it Could you just take us to where you were in the Capitol when you first realized something was going wrong? I was on the Senate floor. 11 votes Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar was overseeing the certification vote with Senator Roy Blunt. Langford was speaking. 
We proposed a 15-member commission, just like what was done after the failed election of 1876. Senator James Lankford is explaining why he's objecting to Arizona's electoral votes. My challenge today is not about the good people of Arizona. And they stopped him. And it will stand in recess until the call of the chair. Republican Senator Chuck Grassley slams down his gavel. Langford looks puzzled. Republican floor assistant Tony Hannigan walks briskly to Langford's side and murmurs, Protesters are in the building. Thank you. The protesters are in the building. We were all told to basically stay in place. I remember that there was a lot of panic over where are some of the senators. Meanwhile, the president, sitting at the White House, he's enjoying, on some level, the anger of his supporters that he stirred up. And he's done nothing so far to stop the violent rioters. Hordes of Trump supporters waving MAGA flags, storming up the hill, climbing over balconies, People erecting nooses, chanting, hang Mike Pence. Pence and his family are immediately evacuated from the Senate chamber. Then what I remember is being told that some shots had been fired, maybe 15 minutes later, and I announced it. And actually someone told me, oh, you shouldn't scare people. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm going to scare people because they shouldn't be by the doors. Then the evacuation starts. All of a sudden they said we should leave. We just started walking quickly. Staffers are rushed out of the chamber by Capitol Police. Pence and leadership had already been removed, but most senators were still in their seats. Many left behind belongings, even cell phones in the rush. A parliamentarian named Lee Hildebrand had the foresight to grab the precious electoral college votes, the mahogany ballot box. I remember thinking, oh, that's a good idea. I mean, this was a really tense moment. You had senators next to staffers, but these are these narrow corridors, these narrow stairwells, and they were walking in a single file line. This unwieldy group going down the stairwell with the police, and you've got armed agents blocking off doorways and hallways. Some younger staff were crying. One person in the chamber told me they would never forget the look they saw on Senator Mitt Romney's face. Pale terror. The line kind of crammed up as they were going down the stairs and Senator Lindsey Graham wanders over to this set of large windows. He's almost a spectator looking out the window at this feral mob there's this parade of blue Trump flags floating outside, and another senator yells, Lindsay, get away from the window. You know, we've got to remember, th this was a menacing mob. We had no idea whether they had guns. Some of them were armed, in fact. On January the 6th, Matt Pottinger was serving as the White House Deputy National Security Advisor. He was one of those officials who had decided long ago that it was better to stay inside the Trump administration, to work to promote what he saw as good policy and to prevent what he saw as bad things from happening. 
Matt had spent that morning and early afternoon in off-site meetings. He was completely unplugged and oblivious to what was going on. Bear in mind, this is one of the most important national security officials in the entire administration. He's driven back to the West Wing around 2 p.m. He walks into this suite that houses the national security staff. All he sees is his colleagues in this suite, completely silent. Their mouths are agape, and they're looking up, transfixed by what's going on on TV. And Pottinger just stands there and says, what the fuck is going on? Pence has now been sequestered off literally to save his life, protect him from this mob that Trump had incited. And not only does Trump, you know, hasn't retracted anything he said, hasn't called to check on his safety, but he's tweeting. As late as 2.24 that afternoon, the president was tweeting abuse against the man who had pledged his loyalty more strenuously than any other politician over the past four years. Trump tweeted, quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our constitution. One of Pottinger's colleagues had shown him Trump's tweet, which blamed Pence and seemed designed to inflame the mayhem. Pottinger decides he's done. He can't serve this president for even a day longer. He immediately starts packing up his office, taking his final few possessions. His world map, a few books, his supply of Tums. He calls his boss to try to avoid his departure leading to a collapse of the National Security Council. His boss was in a meeting in a skiff, a secure facility, when the riots started. And until a staffer had come in with a note, he'd been completely unaware of what was happening at the Capitol. At this point, Trump was winding up, not down. Staff and outside advisors were pleading with him to address the nation. What would you want him to do, Congressman? This will be the first time in the last four years I'm encouraging him to tweet. But go to Twitter and say, it's over, please go home. back at the Capitol. You've got this group, single file, with the Capitol Police, senators, their staff, and they reach a a deserted subway corridor. Police officers try to jam a set of elevator doors with floor mats and small tables and anything else they could get their hands on to take the elevators offline and pen in the rioters on, on other floors of the Capitol. Eventually, the senators reach their destination. It was a large hearing room with rows of long tables covered in black cloth, secured by a perimeter of armed guards. It was way too crowded for COVID. The Senate Sergeant-at-Arms had gotten up on the podium to address the senators, and he can't get the words out. He's emotional, his voice is cracking. He can't really finish his sentences. And Senator Lindsey Graham just snaps, he freaks out, and he starts yelling at the sergeant of arms. This is ridiculous, Graham shouts out. You need to use every resource and every weapon to take back the Senate. Get these thugs out of here. The Democratic senator 
Sherrod Brown yells back at Lindsey Graham to shut up, let him speak. Republican Senator Tim Scott tries to settle everyone down. He's a, a man of deep faith and, and he asks the chaplain to lead the room in prayer. So you've got more than 90 senators and their staff bowing their heads and praying together while this violent mob elsewhere in the capital was causing mayhem. I didn't know the extent of the violence, but I thought one way or another, we have to get back. Senator Klobuchar stepped up to address her colleagues in the room. I gave this speech short where I just said, one thing I know for sure is that we're not going to let these guys take over our chamber and take over our democracy. We are going to go back there and we're going to go back there tonight. People agreed there was widespread sentiment that we should do that, including from all the Republicans. At 3.30 p.m., a Capitol Police officer gets up on the podium. Captain Patton, he had cuts all on his face. He's got a smear of dried blood. It looked actually kind of painful, but he never talked about it. He never acknowledged it. It clearly was something that happened because of the mob and the violence. He tells the senators that the Capitol had been breached. Outside, heavily armed federal agents in military gear were standing guard. It dawns on those sheltering in place that they weren't leaving anytime soon. We'll be right back. We're back. So all the senators, you know, 90 plus senators are in this hearing room. Their only connection to the outside world are their cell phones and the televisions. People were running low on battery, but there was only one charging cable, as far as anyone could tell, in the room. It was one of Senator Kelly Leffler's staffers. So there's this long queue of senators and staff waiting to use the sole Leffler staffer cable charger for their iPhones. At some point, I said, we're going to have to get these people food. And so they're like, well, we can't bring in food. So then I said, just take it from the Dirksen cafeteria and pay for it later. Everyone in the room is still waiting to hear what the president will say and when this will end. Just picture the scene. There are four TV sets showing coverage from CNN. And the anchor, Jake Tapper, is on screen just excoriating Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. McCarthy, Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Hawley, etc. Is- for going along with Trump and objecting to the certification of these results. And while that's happening, Cruz and Hawley are sitting there silently, Cruz, grim-faced, looking down at his phone. The other senators are milling about, talking amongst each other. We were also working on, can we get some agreement about how we're going to get through this electoral college? So at the same time, we're in this dangerous, chaotic situation. We're actually like, okay, can Kelly Loeffler just give a speech and not have an objection to Georgia? Cruz had already made his objection to Arizona's certification, and Hawley's plan to object to Pennsylvania was the only thing standing in the way of the Senate going home early. 
Several of their colleagues came over to try and, at the last minute, persuade them to change their minds and not object. But Hawley had no plans to change his mind. All of you have been watching. Suddenly, President-elect Biden appears on screen from Wilmington, Delaware. At this hour, our democracy is under an unprecedented assault. Unlike anything we've seen in modern times. The room went silent and everyone listened. The words of a president can inspire. At their worst, they can incite. This is the first time anyone in the room has heard from one of the nation's leaders. The current sitting president hasn't said a word. Therefore, I call on President Trump to go on national television now to fulfill his oath and defend the Constitution and demand an end to this siege. Biden finishes his speech. Nearly everyone clapped, which I thought was actually a really good moment uh, for the democracy. Moments later, 4.16 p.m., the Associated Press makes the call that Georgia's second Senate seat went to Democrat John Ossoff. Exactly one minute later, the news cycle is interrupted again. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. Trump's long-awaited address to the nation arrived via tweet at 4.17 p.m. It was a video with a pre-recorded message from the Rose Garden of the White House. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. Trump was validating this mob that had just stormed the Capitol. He's telling them, you know, you are justified in anger. He literally said he loved these people. He was talking to them like that, you know, affectionate uncle to a, a wayward, beloved niece or nephew. You know, please, you know, I know what you're feeling. I know why you did it, but it's time to go home now. Senators and their staffs are infuriated by what they've just seen. That was pathetic, one staffer said angrily. They're overwhelmingly pissed off. You've got to remember, this is the staff and Senate bipartisan who had just given a standing ovation to Joe Biden's speech to the nation. At this moment, more than any moment during the Trump presidency, and I'm even talking about Charlottesville and when the president endorsed Vladimir Putin's side of events over the US intelligence community. More than even those terrible days, Trump's senior staff and senior officials across the administration were seriously contemplating what they were a part of and whether they ought to resign. There was this moment where it really seemed possible that there would be a mass exodus at the top level of the government. And then you had the education secretary, Betsy DeVos, who started making a quiet series of phone calls to other cabinet officials, and she was sounding them out about the idea, inching up to it. She wasn't necessarily saying the phrase, but it was, what should we do now? And the subtext was 25th Amendment. 
you know, whether the cabinet could get together and invoke the 25th Amendment to remove the president. These conversations didn't go very far, but it was a reflection of the mood and the intensity within these early hours. Senior Trump administration officials were quitting by the hour. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, the First Lady's Chief of Staff Stephanie Grisham, Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Matthews, Matthew Pottinger, who we mentioned earlier, Special Envoy to Northern Ireland Mick Mulvaney, who had previously served as White House Chief of Staff, told CNBC, quote, I can't do it, I can't stay. The Transportation Secretary Elaine Chow, the wife of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, she was horrified and wanted to resign immediately, but her husband was held up in the Senate. Let's get back to work. The Senate reconvenes just after 8 p.m. There were three key moments that showed that Trump had finally pushed his allies too far. You had Mike Pence serving in his constitutional role presiding over the Senate. We condemn the violence that took place here in the strongest possible terms. He looks hollowed out, exhausted, had a hangdog look about him. To those who wreaked havoc in our capital today, you did not win. Violence never wins. Freedom wins. And this is still the people's house. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had ahead of time understood the importance of this January 6th vote. He saw that this vote that Trump had built up on January 6th was a key test for democracy. And he fully intended to serve his duty that day. I want to say to the American people, the United States Senate will not be intimidated. This was the speech of a man who would never speak to Donald Trump again. Criminal behavior will never dominate the United States Congress. This institution is resilient. Our democratic republic is strong. The American people deserve nothing less. Then you had Senator Kelly Leffler, who had just lost her race in Georgia after tying herself to Trump. In order to get Donald Trump to full-throatedly endorse her in the rally, she had announced to the crowd that she would object to the certification. When I arrived in Washington this morning, I fully intended to object to the certification of the electoral votes. However, the events that have transpired today have forced me to reconsider, and I cannot now in good conscience object to the certification of these electors. She sheepishly reverses herself. They all finished voting. It was past 3 a.m. Everyone in the Senate left, except Roy Blunt and me, and then the vice president. In the end, it was our merry band of democracy advocates and holder-uppers. The two kids carrying the mahogany box Blunt and me and the vice president, surrounded by a whole boat of security. I looked up at Pence, and in this day of COVID and our masks, we just did this little fist bump. And to me, that fist bump was about, maybe we don't agree on much, 
but we agree that this country will go forward. The morning after the riots, Trump showed no remorse as he interacted with his dwindling staff at the White House. He wasn't thinking about apologies or what he had wrought. He was fixated in his conversations with staff on the disloyalty of Republican senators who had flipped and decided not to object to the certification of Joe Biden's victory. Inside the West Wing, Trump's senior staff were unanimous in the view that he needed to say something more responsible to the nation. His son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who had really been disengaged from the insanity after November the 3rd, he steps in here. He could see what was going to happen to the family after Trump left office, that this was a moment that was putting Trump into a new category of pariah. So Jared gets together with other White House staff, speechwriter Stephen Miller, White House counsel Pat Cipollone, and they start planning out this speech. Jared starts the draft and Stephen Miller finishes it. Finally, 30 hours after the riot, the president speaks again. I have directed federal agencies to use all necessary resources to maintain order. In Washington, D.C., we are bringing in thousands of National Guard members to secure the city and ensure that a transition can occur safely and without incident. Exactly two months after the networks called the election for Joe Biden, two months to the day, January 7th, President Trump finally said what was obvious to everyone except himself and his small band of conspiracy theorists since November 7th. He said a new administration would be inaugurated on January 20th. January 6th will either be a turning point in US history or a significant marker on a straight path to something much worse. Trump has unleashed and accelerated forces in this country that can't simply be put back in a bottle. And they can't be ignored and they can't be wished away. For many elected officials, it prompted the questions, how did we miss this? How did I let this happen? What was I participating in? What was I making excuses for? The question for many of Trump's most loyal aides and staffers, and even his vice president, Mike Pence, is what now? To what extent, having tied themselves so closely to Trump, can they carve out a future separate from him? And what kind of compromises, ethical or otherwise, do they have to make to keep some kind of a connection to Trump's most fervent supporters? Republican leadership, the corporate donors, and wealthy backers who've underwritten the Republican Party for so many years have a resolve and deep determination to stop Donald Trump from ever emerging again in a run for political office. But you shouldn't underestimate his power. He still has 
a powerful connection to many millions of voters around the country. Yes, he's banned from Twitter and he's banned from Facebook, but he's going to find a voice somewhere else. And when he does, millions and millions of Americans are going to listen to it. This is the last episode. I'm very grateful to everyone for listening. We'll have more stories in future seasons of how it happened. But this isn't the only Axios podcast. I would love you to start your day with Axios Today with Nyla Boudou. And listen for big name interviews every afternoon with my colleague Dan Primack on Axios Recap. This episode was produced by the greatest podcast team in American history. Amy Padula, Naomi Shaven, and Alice Wilder. Dan Bobkoff is the executive producer. Additional reporting and fact-checking by Zach Basu. Margaret Talev is managing editor of politics. Sarah Kehulani-Gu is Axios' executive editor. Mixing by Alex Sugiyora. And theme music by Michael Hampf. Special thanks to Carol Wu, Dan Primack, Chen Gao, Nyla Boudou, Tim Shovers, and Axios co-founders, Roy Schwartz, Jim Vanderhei, and Mike Allen. I'm Jonathan Swan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>